Let's pray before we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we have so many things that hinder and distract us. Our own flesh and the sin that we still battle with in it. The world and the devil who would love to snatch up the seed of your word before it sinks in and bears fruit. We pray for your grace to protect us, to strengthen us for this act of worship, of hearing and applying your word, that we may glorify you by bringing forth real fruit in our lives from it. We ask in Jesus' name. We're preaching from Ecclesiastes 3 this morning. Look at verse 11 specifically. I'll read verses 1 to 11. everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning. Amen. Ecclesiastes is a special part of the Bible. Solomon had been given great wisdom um, by God, and yet even with him, as it is with us, wisdom is often something that is cultivated in us through experience. And Solomon was no exception. Through his investigation, through his meditation, through his sin, suffering, and repentance, we have the product of a spirit-wrought wisdom that helps us to rightly view reality, to rightly view life. And it's all the more important because the things named in Ecclesiastes 3, the seasons that we go through, are seasons that everyone, believer and non-believer, goes through alike. And yet how few learn wisdom through those things and go through times of joy and times of difficulty, none the wiser, but still in their sin and perish in them. And so this passage helps us when, not if, but when we are uh, confronted with the reality of the harshness of life, the seeming vanity of existence under the sun, that we might know how to face it and glorify God in it and receive comfort from him 
even in tribulations. Before we can get to the encouraging part in verse 11, though, it's important to understand somewhat of the context of Ecclesiastes 3 as a whole. Because when we first read it, it sounds lovely and soothing. There is a rhythm, there's a beauty in a poetry that could easily lead us to the wrong idea. At first, it sounds like there's the ebb and the flow of life, like spring inevitably follows the winter, like manhood inevitably follows youth in a predictable pattern that reminds us something of the circle of life. But that isn't what Ecclesiastes 3 is about. It isn't here to teach us to just sort of take in the rhythm of life and enjoy the comings and goings of all the parts of it. In fact, the beginning of that list shows us through the starkest of examples just what we're dealing with. Birth, of which, over which we have no control, and death, over which we have no control. And all the things that follow afterwards through that list share in that same characteristic, that same always relentlessly moving pattern. We come into the world not the masters of our own fate, and we leave it in exactly the same way. We labor, we plant, we gather, we build, we sow, but eventually... Always there will be a time that comes when the fruit of our labor is plucked up and rooted out, when it is scattered, when it is demolished, when it is ripped up and lost. And the point of Solomon's observation here is not that we need to figure out which season that we're in so that we can regulate our conduct accordingly and figure out whether I should plant or whether I should not plant. Although even in that, it is good for us to seek the Lord's wisdom and to depend upon his guidance and leading. But the idea here is not so much that we need to figure out that what we need to do, but that all of these things that are described happen to us, whether we want them to or not. After all, Given a choice, who would choose a time to hate? Choose a time to mourn or a time to die? The Bible is not presenting this here to us as some kind of yin and yang, where the light must balance out the dark side of the cosmic equation. Far from it. Every time our season to cast away is thrust upon us, whether it be of some precious possession or cherished dream or dear one in whose death we are knowing the agony of refraining from embracing them again. We know and we feel that these things are evil. Your own experience tells you that. These things are painful and awful. And it is one more reminder that the creature has been made subject to vanity, not willingly. And just to add
add a little bit more onto that, to, to twist the knife a little bit, so to speak. You'll notice as you read through that list in Ecclesiastes 3, that it isn't even the same thing all the time. It's not good followed by bad, or bad always followed by good. There's a mixture. Sometimes the list starts with a good thing and ends with a bad thing. Sometimes it ends, starts with a bad thing and ends with a good thing. And the reason for this uncertainty, this unpredictability, is because life is like that, isn't it? We never start out in a situation where no matter how bad things are, it will inevitably turn around and get better. Sometimes people die in the most discouraging and difficult of circumstances. We can't figure it out on our own. All we can know looking at this list, looking at the order and the, the changing between the good and the bad, is that however they come, all these things will come upon us. And I know that starts off this sermon in a sort of heavy way. <laughs> Don't give up yet. <laughs> because the reason that Solomon emphasizes this for us to have to deal with is because it's reality. And although there's a tendency, especially when we don't believe God's word, to shut our eyes and plug up our ears, thinking that if I don't see it, I don't have to deal with it, that isn't reality. That pretending that life isn't hard, that it isn't difficult in these ways, doesn't allow us to escape the experience of this vanity. And so one application we draw right off the bat is deal with reality as it exists. Don't hide from it. Don't try to reinterpret it. Don't try to pretend it away. God tells us what we experience and all the real contours of it so that we are shut up to dealing with these things, not according to our imaginations, but according to his word. And he teaches us how to do that. All right, you say. Reality is difficult. Ecclesiastes 3 is showing that to me. It almost leads me to the point of asking the question, well then, what's the purpose of anything? Which is exactly the question that Solomon does ask in verse 9. If life is like this, if it's this mixture of the good and the difficulty in an ever onward moving march that I have no control over that will inevitably tear down all that is good in my experience, what's the point? Why do anything at all? Well, on the one hand, of course, we can answer the question by saying, we must do things, we must labor in this world, because if we stop and we don't, what will happen to us? The wheel of history keeps moving. And if you stop working, you won't eat. You'll be crushed under the move of history. Well, then what do I make of this? What do I, I do? How do I evaluate and perceive this reality? Verse 10 tells us that as Solomon looks upon this situation, he sees that this is the travail that God has given men to be exercised in. 
And that's a critical point for us to consider because it brings us to the doctrine that this text is teaching. It's focusing in, us in on the doctrine of God's providence. Now, to understand God's providence, we have to take a step further back, even into the recesses of eternity, where God decreed all of history before it began. Everything that comes to pass, God has ordained. So that there is nothing that happens in this world that doesn't happen not only with his permission, but because he has ordered that it will come to pass in exactly that way. And God ensures that his decrees will happen in history through two things. His works of creation and providence. Now, when in creation, we understand that God made all things out of nothing and formed the world with all its laws and the science that, that goes to work governing it, that uh, provides the stage on which his decrees are acted out, the habitation in which his plan comes to pass. But not only has God created the platform for his decrees to be worked out, according to the doctrine of providence, God is personally, intimately involved making sure that they do come to pass. Westminster Shorter Catechism has defined God's work of providence as his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So that in every last detail of things that happen in this life, God's hand is in it. There is nothing that God's fingerprints aren't all over, ensuring that whatever happens, happens because he wills it and he is inevitably bringing it to pass. Now that's one of those doctrines that creates quite a response in people. And our response to that doctrine tells us a lot about our own spiritual state. Because unless we are reconciled to God by faith in Christ, this is a terrifying thing. And it should be a terrifying thing. Because who can resist God? Who can cheat him or evade his will? Yet how people try, right? The unbelieving world will do anything to avoid this doctrine. They will ascribe life's reverses to fate, to luck, to chance, even a meaningless randomness if that's what's necessary to avoid seeing the intentional and purposeful assignment of God in it. And as Christians, we should be sure that we scrub such thinking from or such thinking from our minds and such vocabulary from our words, not to share in the same atheism as the world around us. But if everything, if everything you experience, everything is out of your control now, and it is in God's control now. What control will we have, my friend, when it comes time for us to die? And in the language of this chapter, 
when God requireth that which is past. It is good to check our hearts, to make sure that we truly trust in Christ. We are not unbelievers, because unbelievers are responsible to God, even all the while that they are in rebellion to the one who sovereignly controls all the vicissitudes of their experience in life. And if we think that this world is a scary place, with that kind of understanding of what's going on in it, it is nothing compared to how scary and horrible the life to come will be for them, who in rebellion to God find themselves in hell, where they will know no intermixture of good and bad, but only bad forever. What kind of verdict can we give to life when that's how we look at it? when that's how it's seen, other than what the Spirit shows Solomon. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. But that context is necessary to get us to the words of Ecclesiastes 3.11, that we might see this welcome blessing to us. It's comforting. God makes everything beautiful in his time. And Christian, then, what comfort this doctrine of God's providence is for you? Think of it this way. God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence, like I've just said. And there's a, a similarity between what God does in both of them. And in creation, what did he do? He took the formless void of what would become the world and out of nothing fashioned and created it into something beautiful. Something to which God himself at the last day of creation could look and say, all was very good. But do we really think that God did that in the creation of the world in the first place and isn't doing that still in his providence? In a very real way, he's taking what seems to us to be chaos, to seem to be the formless void of the history that we've just described, and he's fashioning that, too, into something beautiful. He's making it into something very good. When God was done molding the face of the deep, he had produced the beauty of this creation, a creation that still amazes us. See, when we look at the beauty of it now, in its fallen state, oh, what then is God doing as he forms beauty out of history? The Bible tells us, I hath not seen, nor ear heard. But for all that we can't say about what God is doing until we see the finished product, we can derive something of encouragement from what the Bible tells us will not make up part of that beautiful end that he has in view. One writer has, has put it this way, and I think he's spot on. He says, to everything under heaven, there is a fixed but fleeting season. But to those who are in heaven, the moments are not thus precarious, nor the seasons 
thus short, and still hereafter are the many things for which there is a time on earth for which there is no time there. To those who were born into that better country, there is no time to die. Those that are planted in God's house on high shall never be plucked up, but shall flourish there forever. There, there is nothing to hurt or to destroy, but perpetual health and lasting to eternity. There, the walls of strong salvation shall never be broken down. There, there is no time to weep, for sighing and sorrow are forever fled away. No time to mourn, for when they left this veil of tears, the day of their mourning ended. There it is all a time of peace and a time to love. There monuments are never defaced or overthrown. For those who are pillars in the temple above, with the new name written on them, shall go out no more. There, in the sanctity of the all-superseding relationship, there will be no severance. But those friends of earth who have been joined again above will never need to give the parting embrace, for they shall ever be with one another and ever with the Lord. That is a part of what he is doing, of what he is making out of history as he executed his decrees. Christian, do you believe this? Even occasionally in life now, God gives us those moments, those times, where we have the opportunity to see a little bit of what he's doing. Those times when we've come through difficulties and we can look back in hindsight and say, I, I can see rationale for what God did in my life. I can see if he hadn't done this, this wouldn't have been the result in my life. I can see that having done that, that has produced this good in my life, and it encourages us, and it bolsters our faith when we can see something and give our assent to the goodness and the beauty of what God's doing. But even those times are times purely in this world, purely at this level, we haven't yet begun to see, even in the most insightful moments that we've had, what God is doing from the whole picture of all of history from an eternal perspective. Think about the disciples as just one example, who were grieved when Jesus was about to depart from them and return to heaven, and Jesus tells them, it's better for you that I go away. And they couldn't conceive it. They couldn't comprehend how that could be better for them when it hurt them so much to have Jesus bodily taken from them. And yet we know from the scriptures it was. We know to ourselves how much better it is that Jesus is now administering all things from heaven, has given us his spirit. But oh my friend, how much better will it be even for us when he comes back to this world? And we too cannot now see how our mourning, how our losses, how our reverses, our setbacks, the death of our loved ones 
are part of that beautiful product. But they are. So the application for us is, do you believe God? He tells us this. We know from the scripture he is doing it. Do you believe him? Does it impact and control how you think and feel and react to circumstances in this life when you experience them? Because that's really the test of whether we believe something or not, isn't it? And if we do, someday we will see his work. And what God has made will take our breath away. But the verse says that he does these things in his time, not its time, as if everything inevitably will come to its fruition by the nature of itself, but in God's time. Now, God's time and our time are rarely the same. Now, for a season, if need be, we are in heaviness through manifold temptations. But how does this thought invigorate us and encourage us? That inexorable march of events outside our control is in our Father's control. And though we cannot see how yet, anyway, he has a design, he has a plan, and these little cogs which we see in our life moving are but pieces of that overall engine that he is driving to its God-ordained, God-glorifying end. And even more than that, it's not just that in his time he will make all things beautiful in spite of the bad that we have experienced. He is using even those bad, painful things as part of the whole of what he is making beautiful. There's no better illustration of that point than the crucifixion of Jesus, is there? The ugliest, the most heinous sin to be committed in history. And yet as a Christian, what more beautiful, perfect thing can we think upon than the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he is making all things beautiful in his time, as we, as children of God, are part of that plan too. And so the scripture is teaching us to learn to look at the world in this way, to learn to believe it, to learn to see it in our most painful losses, that even there we are looking upon the seeds of God's most beautiful masterpiece. And you will see everything differently in a whole new light. And isn't it telling then how these same experiences, the planting and uprooting, that unbeliever and believer alike experience? take on a completely different perspective, a completely different hue, depending on what? The relationship in which we stand to God. If we are his enemies, if we have not bowed the knee through faith to Jesus Christ, 
we see him executing all of these decrees inevitably against us, not for our comfort, but as Christians. How wonderfully comforting this truth is. But we must consider one last point from this verse, and that is in verse 11, that God hath set the world in men's hearts so that we cannot find out, now anyway, the beginning from the end of God's work. Now this statement in the verse is very difficult to interpret, and I'll give you the two different approaches that have been proposed with each bringing its own uh, slight uh, angle of, to this perspective, which encourages us. But the point and the application, I think, is the same in both approaches that will apply for our edification. The first here is, as the King James Version takes it, that God has set the world in our hearts. Not set it in our hearts as in the sense of loving the world, for to love the world is to be at enmity with God, and God sets that in no one's heart. But he sets the world in the heart in the sense that he has made us creatures of time, and we're taken up with the necessities of life. We have to uh, give consideration to the things that we eat and drink and work and families and all those sorts of things because we live here in this world God has made for us. Or to put it as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 7, when he was discussing the pros and cons, so to speak, of remaining unmarried versus being married, Paul says in that chapter, But he that is married careth for the things of the world how he may please his wife. And his point there isn't that it's sinful, because he's talked about how marriage is a good thing in its place. But his point is that to the extent that God has put us in callings and relationships in this world, we necessarily have to give our time and our thoughts into thinking about those things. We're not to make what we eat or drink or what we wear our chief end, Jesus tells us that. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about it like the heathen do. But what happens if you don't give any consideration whatever to what you eat or drink or wear? It doesn't work out. Your life falls apart. You have to do that. And to fight against that is to fight against what God has put you in, in the here and now, in this world. But there is still application here for us in this. If we find ourselves struggling to believe the reality of these truths that have been spoken up to this point, that God is making all things beautiful in his time, it's good for us to evaluate our own hearts and ask, how much of the world really is dominating my thinking? I can't escape it altogether, but has it exceeded its bounds and moved out of its place? Am I too worldly? Is the world too much in my mind and too much in my affections? If it's what I'm thinking about all the time, then there's no way I'll ever be able to see things from God's perspective. 
Obsessing over the things of this world is like bringing them up so close to your face that when you bring something up that near to your eyes, you can't see it in its right perspective, can you? The world is similar to us, for us in that way. But at the same time, as I've said, we cannot, no matter how much we might want to, transcend the lot that God has given us now. In God's ordering, now is the time to plant and to sow and to build and to labor in our earthly callings. God himself has given us that task. Now is not the time to build tabernacles on the mount for Moses and Elias and Jesus and retire there and stay there away from all the things that bother us in this world. Now is not the time that God himself has given us to see the beauty he is making. In fact, the verse is telling us God assigns us our earthly lot for this purpose so that we cannot find out his work, so that we have to live by faith. And of course, it always comes back to this in the Christian life, doesn't it? That's what God has given us to do in the here and now. To live not because we understand all that God is doing. Not because we can see it and it meets with our approval and approbation. But to plug along, doing what God has given us to do. Trusting, believing, he's got it. He is making all things beautiful in his time. It is God's doing, it is God's intent that we not be able to figure it all out. For hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And you say, but that's hard. And the answer is, yeah, it is hard. And yet, that is what the Lord is calling his people to do. Oftentimes, the only reason you and I don't sink down into the perspective of vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is because by God's grace, we have promises like this to lay hold of by faith that by faith we may live lives convinced of the truth. The sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That God is making all things work together for good to them that love him and to them who are the called according to his purpose. Do you? Do you believe that. And take heart, beleaguered saint. In whatever times the Lord is pleased to bring over us in his providence, all is well. All will be well. When Jesus was on earth, it was said of him in the Gospels that the people marveled at what he was doing and said, Behold, he doeth all things well. And the reality is that just because Jesus has gone up to heaven, he hasn't stopped doing all things well. 
He is still now working them out beautifully, perfectly. Well, finally, the other sense in which these words can be taken is that God has set eternity in their hearts. The Hebrew word uh, can mean that uh, and does mean that in other places in Ecclesiastes. And so the point that he would be making here is that the reason that people cannot make heads or tails out of providence sometimes is because they were never meant to. They were never meant to be seen from this vantage point under the sun. You want to see the beauty of what God is doing, you have to see it from a vantage point above the sun looking down. You have to see it from the vantage point of eternity to understand what God is doing now in history. The illustration has often been used, and I think is a helpful one, of those uh, fancy carpets that are woven together. And if you pick it up and look on the underneath side of it, that's not where you see the design. That's not where you see the pattern and the beauty of it. Why? Because the carpet is meant to be, the rug is meant to be laid on the ground. And if it's lying on the ground, you're not going to see the underneath side of it. You look down on it and see the design. But we tend to not have the right perspective. We look on things so much from the here and now that we forget that the real perspective we ought to have is the eternal one. And it is from that vantage point that we will look upon God's works at last and eventually be able to see what he has done. And to this end, God has put eternity into the hearts of men. We were never meant to be merely creatures of time. Even from the creation, Adam was made to long forward to consummation, to the fulfillment of God's um, word to him so that he would not forever uh, be on probation in the Garden of Eden. Even from the very outset, the, the coming of the Sabbath day once in every seven days, but then going back to the first day of the week, was pointing men forward to the fact that there is an eternal Sabbath that awaits the people of God. There is an eternity. There is a heaven. That's where we are to be oriented towards and drive towards. And even though man has fallen and does not have that same desire after God and his fallen estate, he still knows in that shattered and broken uh, image of God in him that this is not all there is. He understands every time he experiences a time to mourn, a time to lose, a time to die. This is not what I was meant for. This is not what uh, the perspective that I was intended to live in alone. I'm looking for something that transcends and is beyond that. Do you have that eternal perspective? We're called to, because it will control and it will govern how we live. Or to put it another way, how we pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. By bringing to bear in every situation and in every season that eternal perspective.
That's why Paul tells us, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. How consistently spiritually minded are you? Because that is the key that will enable us to remember the time of these painful seasons is in the grand scheme of things very short. And there is no comparison whatsoever to the glory that shall follow. And if it is not to be compared, then it controls what we do with the time of our life under the sun. As Paul puts it again in 1 Corinthians 7, how do we live in this short season? They that have wives be as though they had none. They that weep as though they wept not. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possessed not. And they that use this world as use it we must, as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. This is wisdom. Oh, that God would give us grace to consistently look upon life in this way, by faith, that we might know it deeply and personally. May the Spirit drive it home to us. Let us stand and pray. Lord, we do believe that Jesus doeth all things well. And we know these things are true and that the Bible holds them out. And we confess that we do not live in this perspective enough. And that we find ourselves sinking